Ephesians chapter 2. Did you guys know that? The Bible's not like 10 china plates or the Ten Commandments, not like ten china plates. It's like a plate glass window. It's like one plate. And if it's chipped, if it's broken in the least, the whole thing is ruined. Some people believe when Jesus came, he lowered the bar. When Jesus came, he raised the bar. And he showed us in reality the standard that God sets, the standard of holiness. And if we don't understand the gospel. The gospel is a word that means good news. If we misunderstand the gospel, the gospel's not good news. If we misunderstand why God gave us this picture of perfection and said, if it's marred in the least little bit, you might as well break the whole thing into a million pieces. If we misunderstand that, that is not good news to us. If we think that we're under this burden to keep something that is impossible for us to keep, we've missed the point of why Jesus came. And this is exactly what Paul is teaching the church here in this letter to the Ephesians. It's what the scripture teaches throughout from Genesis to Revelation. Scripture's not teaching us how to become righteous on our own. The scripture's not giving us principles to live by that make us more acceptable to God. The scripture is painting a picture of God's perfect holiness and righteousness in the demand that God puts upon us that we must be holy as he is holy. And the only way we can do that is, is to not try harder in ourselves. The only way that we can do that is to lose our lives in Christ that we might gain his life. That we would come to see that we are bankrupt in terms of righteousness, that we have no righteousness to bring to God. Then what is our hope? Our hope is that someone would give to us a righteousness that we can bring to God. This is the good news that God has given to us the righteousness of His Son that we may come before Him in His righteousness. Not because we earned it, not because we paid for it, but because of what Jesus did. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what Paul penned for us, recorded in the second chapter of Ephesians. And for time's sake, I'm going to begin reading in the 14th verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, to the end of the chapter. Ephesians 2, 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit, to the Father. 
Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Father, open our hearts and open our minds to your truth. May your truth set us free. We ask that you would do this by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. God didn't just give us peace. He didn't just tell us about peace. He is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. This is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus is our peace, that we could have peace with God. And we have peace with God because of what Christ has done. He became our peace. He is the peace offering. So peace is not just I have this tranquility. I'm not just feeling better about my, my life right now. I've got, had some issues I've been dealing with. No, this is a much deeper understanding of peace. This is a peace that we need to understand that we were the hostile enemies of God. We were actively fighting against, actively opposing God. We were the enemies of God, held by sin and death, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And how did peace and reconciliation come? It came by Jesus Christ. So that now we are no longer the enemies of God, but in Jesus Christ we become the children of God. We become bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We become one with him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This phrase, having made both one, that speaks of Jew and Gentile. And if that spoke of Jew and Gentile in, in that day, this was, the, this was the divide. This is how God's people, the Jews, saw the world. You were either a Jew or you weren't. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. You were either of the people of God or you were of the rest of the nations. Paul says now in Christ there is no longer a divide. There, the middle wall of separation has been broken. God doesn't look at people and see Jew and Gentile. God looks at people and he only sees people who are in Christ or people who are outside of Christ. And from these, this basic distinction here that we see in Ephesians chapter 2, we've carried that to divide people by color, to, to divide people by all kinds of things. And the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't divide people. The gospel unites people. The gospel says we're not divided. The gospel says we are one in Christ. And what determines our identity is not our origin, 
our country of origin, our ethnic origin. It's not the color of our skin. It's not the size of our bank account. It's not the type of house we live in or the type of car we drive. What, what determines our identity is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has made the two one. He has, as Paul writes here, he has created in himself one new man. Look at verse 15. Ephesians 2, 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He abolished in his flesh. Jesus came and in his flesh walked in perfect holiness and perfect righteousness and did what no man could do. He did what the first Adam could not do. He did what no other man after Adam could do. And he abolished, this is what it means when it says he abolished sin in the flesh. He abolished the enmity in his flesh because in his flesh he kept the law perfectly. So only by his body of flesh and by his death Are we presented holy and blameless above reproach before him? This is what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. That the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So the Jews had all these laws, dress this way, eat this way, act this way, do this, don't do that. And it set them apart from all the other nations. They they looked differently, they lived differently, they were different in every way. But God says now, what has happened in Christ, it's not that we look differently. It's not that we wear different clothes. It's not that we eat different food. It's that something has happened in our hearts. There is a change that has taken place on the inside now. Remember, we read this in, uh, on Wednesday night as we're going through the book of Romans. And at the end of Romans chapter 2, verse 29, Paul says, one is not a Jew outwardly, but inwardly. Well, the same applies. One is not a Christian outwardly, but inwardly. One is not a Christian outwardly because they come to the table or because they get baptized, but one is a Christian because inwardly that baptism and that table speak of an inward work that must take place by the Spirit of God. You can practice all the outward things. You can dress a certain way. You can act a certain way. You can come to this table every week. You can get dunked in the water uh, 15 times, and it's not going to mean anything. It means absolutely nothing if there has not been a transaction that takes place on the inside of you inwardly, that there is something that happens not by the hands of man but by an unseen hand by the hand of God that you are changed and transformed Jesus made that possible by coming and fulfilling in the flesh what was what we could not fulfill he was the sinless sacrifice he put away sin in the flesh he led the way so that we could experience a transformation in our heart that God would take our cold, hard, stony heart and he would give to us a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart to know him, a heart to love him, a heart to desire him and a heart to worship him. 
so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. This is the new creation Jesus has brought about through the work of the cross and by the power of his resurrection. This is the peace and the unity that Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17. The reality is that we are already one in him. That was his prayer in John 17. Father, that they would be one even as you and I are one. That prayer is not depending upon you and I to always get along together, though we should, in Christ, get along together, right? God's not still waiting for us to be made one with Him based on our behavior here on earth. No, we have already been made one with Him by the work of the cross. Now, because that work is done, we should now love one another. We should now be able to get along together. Doesn't mean we won't always, uh, that we would never have disagreements or we would always believe or think the same things. That'd be a pretty boring world, wouldn't it? If that was the case. If you guys were like me and you just loved Mexican food and, and every restaurant on uh, in town was a Mexican restaurant and you, you didn't have a chance to ever go buy a hamburger or a pizza or anything else, It'd be a pretty boring food city, wouldn't it? No, that's not what it means. But what this means is that now in Christ, he's made peace. He's made the two one. He's created in himself one new man. This prayer that Jesus prayed, recorded for us in John 17, 20 through 23, is is talking about the reality that would be brought about through the work of the cross, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection, and through his ascension. Jesus would make all believers one with him. So now when you are born again, when you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you become one with Christ. You become one with the rest of the body. Your comprehension of that may be lacking. But the reality of that, if you are in Christ, is not lacking. So what's got to happen is we've got to catch up. Our comprehension has to catch up with the reality that has been brought about in Jesus Christ. Now, how are we going to do that? We're not going to do that by watching the news and reading the newspaper constantly and listening to the lies that, that come about. We're going to do that by picking up the truth and washing our minds with the truth. And we're not going to look at people the way the world wants us to look at people. We're going to look at people the way the, that God says we should look at one another. We're going to love one another the way God loves us. We're going to see not Jew or Gentile. We're not going to see male or female. We're not going to see black or white. We're not going to see rich or poor. We're going to see one new man in Jesus Christ. We've got to renew our mind to that truth. And this is what Jesus has made possible through the work of his cross. He has brought it about. In verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. He has reconciled all men. We can say Jew and Gentile, but let's just say he has reconciled all humanity 
whatever distinction you want to draw, whatever distinction of humanity, however you want to divide and make humanity distinct, the Bible says that God has taken the whole of humanity and he has made them one body in Christ. This is the peace and the goodwill toward men declared by the angels that's recorded for us in Luke's gospel. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We have been reconciled to God. We have peace with him through faith in Jesus. It doesn't mean that all men have been reconciled. It doesn't mean every single human being has been reconciled to God. It means that when we come to Christ, when we are born again, when we are made children of God, we have experienced the reconciliation that God has brought about in Jesus Christ, thereby putting to death the enmity. There is no longer a division between God and his people. There is no division. There is no enmity between the people of God. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Again, to those who were afar off, the Gentiles, the people who weren't the people of God, the people who didn't have the scripture. You are far off, Paul says, but God came to you and he preached peace to you. I don't know where you came from. I don't know where your ancestors came from. But wherever you came from, whether you were far off or whether you were near, God has preached and proclaimed to you peace. Paul is affirming to the believing community the unity and the peace that we have with God and with one another. He is hammering home this truth that there is no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile. The same truth applies today to break down the wall of separation that man has erected to divide and distinguish by color or race or social status or any other thing that destroys the unity and the peace that we are to walk in as believers. Whether we were near or far, God came and he preached peace and it was his grace that saved us and raised us up in new life to become one in him. Verse 18, for through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father. For through him, all we are and all we have is through him. It's through Christ. Every spiritual blessing God has blessed us with, where is it? Paul writes in Ephesians, the first chapter, it's been given to us in Christ. The righteousness that we have now, it has been given to us in Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is only through Christ that we have been given access. Access by one spirit. Access to the Father. Here is the affirmation again that both Gentile and Jew have access by God and that salvation is by Jesus Christ for the whole world. Not just for one country, not for just one people, but for the entire world. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. It is through him 
And it is by one Spirit that, that we have access to the Father. It is by the Spirit that we are born again. It is the Spirit that brings us from death to life. It is the Spirit that opens our eyes and opens our ears and gives us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. It is the Spirit that produces faith in us to trust in Christ. It is by one Spirit that we are baptized into one body, into Jesus Christ. And it is by the Spirit that we are raised to resurrection life and resurrection power. And we have been given access by this Spirit to the Father. All who are in Christ have access by one Spirit to the Father. John 14, 6, Jesus says to his disciples just hours before his arrest and crucifixion, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not a way. He is the one and only way to the Father. And this is what Jesus has done. He has made a way for us to come to the Father. He didn't just give us a place in heaven on the far side uh, of the wilderness of heaven and and just say, well, you know, you just ought to be glad that you're here. Don't even think you're going to get to come see the Father. Just be glad that you're here. No, He brought us directly to the Father. He brings us into the presence of God. He makes us one with Him so that our communion with the Father is just as His communion. This is his prayer in John 17. Father, that they would be one as we are one. That they would be one in us and one with us. He's brought us to the Father. He is the way. By the finished work, Jesus has brought us into the presence of the Father. In that sense, church, I want you to understand this. In that sense, you You are now in the presence of God. You have been brought to the Father in Jesus. If you are in Jesus Christ right now, you have been brought into communion, into relationship with God, with the Father. That's why the hope and the promise that we will see Him one day, that we will live in His presence one day is a sure hope and a sure promise. Just like my bodily resurrection is a sure hope and a sure promise. Why? Because I have already been raised with Christ. We just read this last week in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, You were dead in trespass and sin, but God made you alive and raised you up and seated you with Him. Past tense. Done deal. But yet you're seated here in this building in Taylor, Texas. Yet the Bible says you have already been raised and seated with Jesus Christ. The Bible says one day you will see Him face to face. One day He will return bodily and you will live in His presence. How is that going to happen? Because it's already happened in a sense. Spiritually, you are already there. Spiritually, your place is secure. Spiritually, your position has been secured in Jesus Christ. All the details have been worked out. God in His time will bring it all to pass. That's why we have hope. That's why we have a promise. That's not maybe, 
but it is yes and amen. It is sure in Jesus Christ. Verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now therefore, here is the glorious conclusion of Paul's point that there is now one man. You are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are no longer alienated. You are no longer foreigners living without the rights of citizenship. You have been brought into the household of God. You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is what Jesus meant when he said in that day, Abraham will be in the kingdom and they will come from every direction to sit with Abraham. Jew and Gentile. Because if you are in Christ, Paul writes, you are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to promise. Now, possessing the same citizenship with the saints and having become recipients of the adoptive grace of God, we are now members of the household, members of the family of God. We're not just in the house, we're members of the family. This is what this word, members of the household, members of the oikos of God. You have become part of the household, part of the family of God. How did you become that? You became that by the grace of God. You became that because while you were dead in sin, God made you alive in Christ Jesus. While you were cast down and separated from God, God raised you up and seated you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? Because of the good pleasure of his will. How did he make that possible for you? Because he imputed to you the righteousness of Christ. Not because you deserve it. Not because I deserve it. But because he desired to do that with the love with which he loved us. And now as a result of that we're no longer strangers and foreigners. But we have become members of God's family. Verse 30. I mean verse 20. Having been built. On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Remember, this started back up when Paul says, he, he says to, to you, he's talking to the church, he's talking to the believers. Now, therefore, verse 19, you are no longer strangers. You are fellow citizens. You, having been built, this truth that we are the family of God, this truth that we are children of God. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the believers. And he says, you, having been built, picture someone building a house, having been built. Paul is using a very practical picture here, and he's saying someone's building a house. And you are part of that house. You are being incorporated to become that house. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets... 
There is a past tense sense here. It's not he is building. It's having been built. He is building. But again, if you think about how you build a house, when do you lay the foundation? Do you do sheetrock or foundation first? Do I have any builders here? Do you do foundation or roof first? The foundation is laid to be built upon. And this phrase, foundation of the apostles and prophets, is not telling us that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation, but that the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation. And that foundation, who is that foundation? Who is the rock that it's built upon? Christ, Jesus, is the rock. He is the foundation. Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, upon this revelation of who I am, I will build my church. There is no other foundation to be laid. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul writes, Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Two things in a building will determine whether it's true and square. That's the foundation and the cornerstone. If your foundation isn't square, your building's not going to be square. If your cornerstone's not set right, the rest of your building's not going to come out very good. Now, we live in a day where these aren't commonly used. Everybody puts up metal buildings, and we, don't, we know about foundations, but we don't really understand the mechanism that goes into constructing what the Bible is picturing for us here. That if it's not line upon line, precept upon precept, if the foundation isn't laid right, if the cornerstone's not laid right, it affects the trajectory of everything else in that building. And this is why Jesus is called the foundation and why he is also called the chief cornerstone. He determines everything. Jesus is both. He's the foundation that's laid. He's the cornerstone. He's the first stone that is set. And all the other stones will be set in reference to Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. In the day of judgment, do you know what reference is going to be made? Your life, my life, the reference that our life is going to be judged by is Jesus Christ. The standard that our life is going to be judged by is Jesus Christ. We don't all have our own reference points. We don't have all of our own standards. God says Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. So you are set in place in reference to him. That can be a very comforting thing if you're trusting in Jesus or it should be a very frightening thing if you're not trusting in Jesus. Matthew 21, 42 through 43, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scripture? He quotes Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. 
And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomever it falls, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Those are the words of our Savior. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Isaiah 28, 16, Peter quotes, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Jesus is either the foundation and cornerstone that you have fallen upon broken, or he is the rock of offense, the stumbling stone that will fall upon you and grind you to powder in his own words. One way or another, he is the foundation laid and he is the chief cornerstone of the house that he is building. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom? Referring to in Christ. In Christ, the one who holds all things together in himself. The whole building, the whole building picturing for us the whole church, the whole body, the whole of Jew and Gentile, the whole of humanity. Not every single person of humanity, or we would be universalist, but every single kind of humanity. We're Christians. And we believe that God will save every kind of humanity. Being fitted together, that is the jointing and the joining of all the parts together, forming a symmetrical, compact, well-ordered, and well-constructed building. This is the picture Paul is painting for us. Picture the finest craftsmanship that you can imagine and then realize that your imagination falls infinitely short of the reality that's being pictured for us. God is the master craftsman. He is the master builder. God is building. God is growing His church into a holy temple in the Lord. And you and I are the building materials that He is using to construct and form this holy temple. Verse 22, In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In whom you also are being built together. In Christ you also Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus, but he's writing for this church today. And that you also applies to them 2,000 years ago, but it also applies to you today. And you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You, with all the rest of the saints and all the rest of the world, are being built together. God is building Jerusalem. He is building His church, and the building is taking place in every place, in every believer, in everyone who is in Christ. And you also implies you and me and everyone who is in Christ for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In Christ, we are being built together for a dwelling place of God 
And the Spirit doesn't mean that it's some invisible and wispy, ethereal thing. We hear the word spirit and we think ghost and we think smoke and we think vapor and we think immaterial. No, don't think that when you hear the word spirit. In the spirit, in the spirit means that it's real, that it's solid, that it's concrete, that it's eternal in the heavens and it's eternal in the earth. The joys we have in Christ, the promise we have in Him, the reality that we have in Him are solid. They are real. They can be touched. They can be felt. They can be experienced. They are as real as the earth we cling to. They are as real as the air that fills our lung and the stomach that will fill our, or the food that will fill our stomachs when we leave this place today. What God has given us in Christ is real. In fact, it is more real than anything we can experience of this earth because they are eternal. They are spiritual. They are real. They are solid. They are tangible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built together a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, the sacrifice of praise and the sacrifice of thanksgiving we offer up to him are to be real and continuous and eternal just as he is and just as all that he has given to us in Christ is real and eternal. In the book of Revelation, God pictures the holy Jerusalem coming down and the the angel says, come and I will show you the bride of the Lamb. And like I always say, God's not marrying a city, God's marrying a people, but the people are described as, they're pictured as a city. God is building Jerusalem. God is building his temple God is building you. The measure of growth of his building is not first known outwardly. It is first experienced and known inwardly. If you think about this, by the time you see a building that's breaking ground, you have no idea how much work, how much planning has already gone into that building before the first shovel of dirt is ever turned. We think the building began with the first turn of dirt. No. The building began long before that. That is how God works in your life. That's how God works in our life. We think because we see it, because we experience it, because we now realize it, now God finally is working in my life. But the reality is God has been working since before the creation. This is why Paul began his letter to the Ephesians where he did. He began his letter describing to them God's love, God's election, that God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Because God wants you to know that his working in your life is not dependent upon whether you can perceive it, whether you can conceive of it, whether you can understand it and comprehend it, but his working in your life began before the foundation of the world, before there was ever time and space. It began before. Now what you're seeing is just the result of what God has already done. Because he is 
the master builder, the master craftsman that is never not working. He is never not building, never not ordering all things to bring about what he has already master planned for our good and for his glory. Don't believe that because I told you, church. Believe that because this is the message that the Scripture communicates to us. Praise the Lord and take heart. The Lord is building Jerusalem and that means that He is working in you. Amen.